uh, is self-consciously, like if John knows he is basically bringing the new covenant scriptures to a conclusion, uh, which I think he does signal in his final chapter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then it makes sense that as the climax of the covenant, as some would call it, he's almost absorbing all of the Old Testament into it. I mean, it's just like every verse is almost like some reflection of some little remix or taste of the Old Testament. It's, he's, he's almost, I mean, he's doing everything he can to just bring all of the Old Covenant to its climax. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic reform tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign-up link, or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today is a Promises and Fulfillments episode. It's episode 13, discussing chapter 13, Covenant in the Johannine Epistles and Revelation. And it's by Dr. Gregory Lanier, who's actually joining us today. And it's the final chapter of part one, Biblical Covenants in the Covenant Theology book by Crossway. So before we jump in, just a couple reminders on our show notes. There's some links, including one to Crossway. If you click that, you'll see the book that we're talking about this season, and you can purchase one for yourself and follow along. You can follow uh, with a link to some uh, reformed churches near you, including May Park churches, as well as a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters, where you can find other like-minded podcasts out there. So we will jump right in with Dr. Lanier and talk about his chapter today. Yeah, good, good, good to see you guys. Yeah, Dr. If you guys need some just some some background on who Dr. Lenier is, he's a professor of New Testament in Orlando. So he's resident faculty there. And he's also an associate pastor part-time at River Oaks Church and is ordained in the PCA and has been teaching for a couple of years. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Lenier. This is it's great to have you. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, this was a really cool chapter in the book to sum up all the biblical covenants and consummation of of the last the end of the bible and and wrapping it all together with yeah with 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 such an easy book as revelation it's it's how has somebody not written on covenant and revelation before yeah that that was one of the weird things obviously (laughs) a million things have been written on the book revelation but for those who are covenant theology inclined towards covenant theology i was actually surprised to see how little had been done and yeah. i hadn't really honestly thought a whole lot about it myself so it was actually pretty pretty good for me to work through as well as i was working on the, the essay so. yeah 
So yeah, to, to just kind of go in order and, and uh, we'll go in kind of more or less a conversational uh, order of the beginning of the chapter all the way through. But could you maybe lay up some nice context for the audience that might be really new to this subject, the, um, who the author is briefly, and then um, when it was written, who it was written to, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. It's always good to orient yourself that way. And Revelation, in many respects, depending on who you are and how you grew up, Revelation is either like the most familiar book because you spend all of your time trying to break the <laughs> code. true. Yeah. You, you, you have Revelation with you as you're watching the nightly news and you're trying to figure out who is now mm. the beast and what is the new mark of the beast. And so a lot of folks, a lot of students come in, they know everything about Revelation or right, they yep. just never touch it. Uh, and, huh. and often like reformed-ish people tend to be a bit skittish about the book of Revelation. But in terms of basic background, uh, in general, the, the consensus is uh, that it was written most likely in the 90s, so late first century. Yeah. Uh, most likely the last book written in the New Testament. And uh, it begins by attributing it to John. Uh, that doesn't necessarily say which John, but the hmm. most famous John in the early church and the one who is the most likely candidate would be the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee. Uh, and there's there's pretty good consensus that whoever, you know, this John who wrote the book of Revelation also wrote the gospel that is attributed to John as well as the three epistles mm. as well. So uh, this this particular John then actually did a lot uh, of writing for the New Testament. Uh, somewhat surprisingly, Luke wrote the most, or at least the plurality of the New Testament with Luke and Acts. And then you have Paul, then right after that, you have John in terms of total quantity. So uh, John, the beloved disciple, is the most likely author. Uh, called, you know, at some point in the '90s, and uh, he describes himself as having been exiled. Uh, you have some initial persecution kicking in the early church, and so what you often find, and the reason why Revelation is so weird for many people is that it has a particular genre that it's in. Yeah, uh, it's it's not parables, you know, it's not Romans, it's not. Uh, a gospel narrative. It has all kinds of strange moving parts because it's a particular genre known as apocalypse. And apocalypses are often written in times of uh, big time upheaval, you know, bad things are happening. Uh, the world seems to be falling apart. And so apocalypses tend to be written in that time frame. Um, and so there appears to be some sort of persecution. It comes up a lot in Revelation. And so that's the most likely context. I sort of explains why uh, he chose to write it this way in this very poetic, strange, mysterious way of doing things, much like the book of Daniel or some other writings uh, like that. Yeah. And it just makes it hard for us to approach because we don't read a lot of apocalypses, but uh, that <laughs> they were much more common back then. So, um, yeah. And kind of beyond that question, too. So just so people, when they see this chapter, they OK, the epistles and Revelation, why are these two being put into one chapter? Because they're definitely not the same books of the same genre. So if you can, what, like, what, what, like, who's John writing to just real quick and, and why, why, why are these so different? Yeah. So in, in one sense, uh, they, they don't necessarily fit together other than uh, common authorship. And at least in the book, they, they had carved out the gospels from it. And so that's, uh, that's why I didn't include the gospel of John here. But somewhat ironically, you could actually suggest that at least at the, at the beginning, Revelation is, even though it seems very different than 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, yeah. uh, it kicks off actually with letters. True, and, yeah. Uh, you know, people want to jump into all the kind of 
the beasts and the dragon and all these things. And all, that's all interesting, obviously, but uh, you don't want to skip over the first few chapters that are letters to these seven churches, uh, probably meant to be circulated churches. And so, and in fact, the whole, the whole thing is a letter. Uh, you see that at the conclusion as well. It concludes like a letter. So even the revelation is mainly an apocalypse with strange symbols and heavenly things going on and bowls of fire and all that kind of stuff. It actually is a letter and it's actually a letter of letters. So in many respects, you could say there are 10 epistles of John. Interesting. You know, the three that we know, and then the seven in the book of Revelation. So there is actually, in some sense, a nice fit huh. uh, of the, because you could actually say the book of Revelation is a Johannine epistle, I suppose you could say that. So True. Yeah, it was written to, to churches. Yeah. And you, <clears throat> you do, towards the end of your chapter, say that uh, John is indebted to Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Isaiah in Revelation. That's where he's pulling a lot of his stuff. And I think that's important to point out because... It's a, it's a reminder that we keep referencing a lot of Old Testament stuff in the New Testament. The New, the New Testament is not just this brand new thing that came out of nowhere. We keep the authors in the New Testament keep going back to the Old Testament. Yeah. And that's really key. So we're going back to the intro conversation. Whenever you're reading the book of Revelation, and I, and I taught through it at church and so went through some of the stuff and that sort of test drove it with my church community. Uh you have basically two different ways you could read the book of Revelation. And for better or worse, the vast majority of American Christians, especially those who grow up more in a dispensational mindset with left behind and those kinds of things. Uh, the way people tend to read the book of Revelation is they look at it as a essentially like a video in advance of, of current events. And so they want to read it in light of what they see on their chosen favorite news provider and that's the grid that they're using to sort of make sense of all the details and the yeah. locusts are apache helicopters whatever the other option <laughs> yeah. is that the option that i think is the better option uh and the one that john actually sort of compels us to do is you go left in your bible and that's what i tell my my mm. parishioners i say if you don't understand the book of revelation you got to flip left and you got to go read the old testament and in fact mm. if you want to pick one thing to go and read daniel would be the one you can't mm. make sense of the book of revelation without the book of daniel uh, John signals that over and over again. And so the re I think the reason why people are scared of the book, other than it's terrifying, um, <laughs> but the main reason as, as a reader that they're uh, skittish about it is, generally speaking, uh, Old Testament knowledge is on the wane and people don't know their Old Testament very well. And so if you don't know your Old Testament, yeah, Revelation truly is not going to make any sense at all. It really hmm. would not, or, or you're going to be left just making stuff up, uh, which is what happens for some folks. It's the code that you're going to try to yeah. figure out. Yeah. The Old Testament is the, the, the code breaker for the book of Revelation uh, isn't like the European Union and Mikhail Gorbachev or whomever, <laughs> Nikolai Carpathian. It's, it's the Old Testament, actually. And so uh, it's almost like before you even touch it, you should go read Exodus and all the prophets, and then you're ready to read the book of Revelation. <laughs> yeah, that's true. true. Yeah, and I think you, you kind of make that point too, where Revelation doesn't directly quote saying, here's this Old Testament passage, I'm quoting this. It alludes to every single passage that it talks about. And kind of in the covenant, so can you describe like what, what that means within the book of Revelation covenantally? Why, why is it alluding to these things without just straight saying, this comes from this portion of scripture? Yeah, I mean, that's a puzzle because 
you know, in Romans, Paul says that like 90 times. And so why does John and, and in John's gospel and so forth, he, he makes more explicit, you know, as it is written kinds of comments. So why does he not do it in the book of Revelation? Uh, I mean, in some sense, we'd have to, we'll have to ask him uh, at some point. And, that's and true. Yeah. Why. But uh, two, two things we can try to deduce. One is from an apocalypse perspective, that was very common for the genre. And so if you look at other types of apocalypses, some of which are in the Bible, some of which are outside the Bible, that tends to be their MO. And that instead of being really heavy handed and saying, okay, this is from Isaiah or this is from Zechariah, they just sort of sprinkle it all in there. It becomes almost mm-hmm. the paint they're using to paint the pictures. Mm-hmm. And that was just an intentional choice to almost create this atmosphere that's just like Old Testamenty without being super precise. Um, and then the, the other, I guess, reason is that if it's true uh, that the that this prophetic apocalyptic letter, which is basically what it is, uh, is self-consciously like if John knows he is basically bringing the new covenant scriptures to a conclusion, uh, which I think he does signal in his final chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then it makes sense that as the climax of the covenant, as some would call it, he's almost absorbing all of the Old Testament into it. I mean, it's just like every verse is almost like some reflection of some little remix or taste of the Old Testament. It's, he's, he's almost, I mean, he's doing everything he can to just bring all of the Old Covenant to its climax. Um, but without, I guess, you know, maybe if you were all the time saying, okay, this beast is doing X as it is written, or, or this happened to fulfill what was written in Joel, in some sense, that would almost be too on the nose. And it's, it's almost like he's just trying to paint the picture that it's mm. all coming to a head at this moment. So yeah. that's my hypothesis, at least. I have to ask him. But Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, <clears throat> if, you're a good, if you're a good musician and you're sampling prior songs, you don't always signal that you're sampling prior songs. And that's actually <laughs> part of the fun is like, can you mm. pick up on this echo? And that's sort of what the game that he's playing. Right. Yeah, mm, I like that. Um, yeah, and you point this out in the chapter that John is very Trinitarian, um, and you and you help us understand that in your chapter. So thank you for that. You break down God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Break them down how they are covenantal, uh, relating to how they speak to God's people, the elect, the church, in covenantal terms in Revelation and First to third John. And you also mention John who, who writes the last inspired covenant document of the new covenant era. He, he intentionally seems to be bringing all scripture to a close. So that was more of a comment and statement there, but maybe we could go to like how he describes the Trinity and how yeah. you write yeah. about that. in the book. Yeah. That's so interesting. Cause he doesn't just say, Oh yeah. God's the father and he's fully God. Jesus is the son. He's fully God. And the spirit's fully God. It's he, he plays with language in a way that we're not used to. So yeah. So yeah, I love that question. Yeah, if, you, if you can describe that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, part of the, the chapter, I mean, it is, it was fun to write the chapter on revelation in a book by a bunch of Presbyterian covenant theologian people, <laughs> yeah. um, because that's not like our wheelhouse typically. Yeah. And typically a different theological persuasion has sort of owned the book of revelation for a long time. And so that was kind of a fun challenge. And as I was trying to retrieve, uh, which is the fancy word that we all say now, uh, as I was retrieving, um, paging my <laughs> yeah. boss on that front, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
as we're retreating the book of Revelation for covenant theology, uh, the, the thing I found so fascinating that I quite that I hadn't quite gotten myself until I was really working through the details is how the way John portrays the character, the nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with, with few exceptions, um, is you it is by using covenantal ideas, uh, which I didn't really know. And so, for instance. Uh, one of the notable features of the book of Revelation is this repetition of how God is the one who was, who is, and who is to come, or he's the Alpha and Omega, uh, and so on. And those are somewhat unique phrases, but if you know your Old Testament, they're actually basically kind of a, a spin on both the divine name in Exodus 3 and a handful of phrases in the book, uh, the writing of Isaiah, about God who is in the past, who is the present, who is to come. And so John is sort of borrowing that language. So it's, he's basically giving a, a uh, fresh look at the God who says, I am who I am, or I am who I will be. But what he does with that language, so that's, so that's already coming into it. He's going back to Exodus, for instance. So that's old covenant ideas. Uh, but what he does is he basically sort of puts those phrases on the lips of the Father and then on, on Jesus, and then on both, actually, because they're both with one voice from the throne at the end of Revelation saying, you know, I am the uh, first and the last, I am the beginning and the end, I am the one who was, who is, who is to come. Uh, and so when he does that, he's essentially having Jesus share in and give voice to the covenantal name of God, which I think is just fascinating uh, and very powerful. Once you, once you realize that's what's going on. Uh, but it, but in terms of like individual, in terms of father, and then how does he de depict the son? Uh, you know, there's some just delightful little things, uh, little details by which he describes the identity of the father. Um, you know, the father is reigning on a throne throughout the book of Revelation. And that's clearly sort of the covenant with David as God is the true king. He's going to have a, a king who's going to yeah. rule with him. But then one of the one of the great visions that we have of the throne room is that it was surrounded by a rainbow. And uh, if you know your Bible, you're like, wait a second. I only know of two places where there's a rainbow. One yep. is the go ahead. Oh, yeah. I'm just yeah, I'm agreeing. Yeah. Yeah. So you have uh, the book of Ezekiel where you have the throne room that has a rainbow around it. But then it goes back, of course, to Noah's Ark or after the ark, uh, where you have a rainbow. And so the Noahic covenant and the way it pictures new creation after the flood with a rainbow is already being brought into the description of God. And then fundamentally, heaven in uh, the book of Revelation is a temple. And one of the sort of climactic points where God reveals himself, and it happens to be in conjunction with one of the, the cycles of judgment, one of the, the coolest things is out of nowhere, you have the ark of the covenant show up. Uh, mm -hmm. which if you know your Old Testament, the ark had disappeared and Indiana Jones hadn't found it. <laughs> uh, and or, or I guess he did find it. And then like a bunch of people started dying, right? I can't remember exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Yep. Uh, it wasn't the real thing. But anyway, so the, the ark, which is the sort of, in some sense, the manifestation of God's presence, sort of his, his movable throne room, if you will, at the heart of the temple, uh, it had disappeared after the conquest. And so, uh, it shows back up again at the climax of history, and, and everyone can see it. That's the neat thing about the ark. Uh, so you see the heavenly temple at the heart of the heavenly temple. Everyone can now see the ark because the temple stands open. And so that's just a powerful picture that brings together all the Mosaic law, 
in terms of the temple, what you do with the ark, but then you see now because of the work of Jesus, access has been granted to the most holy place, to the presence of the Father. And so, again, John, when he's writing this, doesn't beat us over the head with that. It's not like Hebrews, right? Hebrews is getting into great detail about how all this works, right? But what John does, he just sort of throws the images in there and sort of leaves it to you to reflect on. You're like, wait a second, God is the same God of the Old Testament. He's in his heavenly temple represented by the ark that's the symbol of his presence and now that's been cosmically transformed and we all can see and be in, in the presence of god like just using the imagery from the old testament pulls that off and just to speak of jesus briefly because there's so much that we could talk about with jesus but when you think of how he's portrayed in the book of revelation there's a, a couple different images he's wearing priestly garments at the very beginning uh, as he's serving in this sort of temple-like situation. And later we see his priestly garments dipped in blood. And so that's all like the covenant with Moses. That's old sort of temple tabernacle imagery, but it's used to describe Jesus because Old Testament's not bad, Old Testament good. Uh, <laughs> but, he's, but he's also, uh, he's a lamb, right? I mean, the, the number one, well, not number one, but one of the top ways he's described in the book of Revelation is as the lamb. Well, where's that from? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's Moses, right? That's yep. the sort of essence of the sacrificial system. Yep. Yet he's described as the root of David. He's from the tribe of Judah and he's reigning on a throne. So that's covenant with David. Um, but it even goes one of my, I preached on this at my home church a long time ago. One of my first sermons, it was a Christmas sermon hmm. and it was on Revelation 12, which is an odd choice. I know. <laughs> um, and they, they felt like it was pretty odd. I haven't been invited back. Uh, <laughs> um, but revelation 12 is this sort of cosmic woman who sort of both represents the church, but also Eve, uh, who's giving birth to a son, a firstborn son. who's going to rule all nations, which is from the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then he's about to be devoured by a dragon serpent who we are told is, is Satan. And so you have a woman, you have a son who's being born to, to conquer, and you have a serpent who's trying to stop him. What are those three pieces from? Did you guys, what do you, what'd you gather from the chapter? They are from Genesis, Genesis three. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so he's, he's almost giving this sort of cosmic remix of yeah. the, uh, the Genesis three, where God shows grace to Adam by promising yep. that the woman's going to have a son who's going to, who's going to beat, the serpent and so yeah, genesis three fifteen, um and, and and actually the sort of surrounding context there yep, uh yep. so if you if you step back you have covenant with adam with revelation 12 you have noah in terms of the rainbow around the throne you have uh, all the mosaic stuff in terms of priestly garments blood ark of the covenant lamb of sacrifice and then you have the covenant with david in terms of kingship and, and mm. jesus being from judah so you can't so essentially what he's doing is he's using the entire Old Testament to try to describe at the fullness of time who Jesus is. Uh, so I just and, find that to be uh, pretty fantastic. Uh, again, that's why it doesn't make any sense unless you know your Old Testament. You can't yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Abraham, too, I think maybe I'm miss. Hopefully I'm hitting the mark here is that all tribes and nations, languages, peoples are part of the new creation and the kingdom of God. Yep. talked a lot about in your chapter yeah. in revelation that points to the offspring the true offspring of abraham yeah yeah so a whole nother lens so if we if we if we shift from trinity which we, we can never you can never get away from the trinity but <laughs> to the extent that you pivot 
uh, a, another big component of the book of Revelation. Think that again, that it's missed if all you're worried about is the hailstones are nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah. The prophet, you know, the, the beast that with the haughty mouth that's uttering blasphemies is some elected leader of a multiverse, I don't know, Loki character, something like that. Uh, if that's how you want to understand the book of Revelation, you run into trouble because you're missing so much more. And one of the, and in some sense, one of the probably the bigger things that we can even see in the book of Revelation is just how John is portraying the people of God uh, in these rich ways using not just Old Testament, but specifically covenant con- uh, concepts. And so you mentioned Abraham is one of them, you know, one of the best pictures that we have and it shows up over and over again but one of the sort of climactic ones if you will is uh is the the song that everyone is singing revelation 7 all the tribes tongues and nations are all in their own language praising uh the father and the the slain lamb and that's basically the picture of eternal worship there Mm. and the tribes and nations that is the abrahamic covenant i mean that's Mm. the essence of genesis 12 15 etc or 12 and 15 not 1215. Um, and uh, it's just, a, it's a beautiful, to the extent that Paul talks a lot about Abraham and some of the other, like in Romans and Galatians, which you have in the book of Revelation, isn't so much like a scholarly argument about it, which is what you have in Romans 4. Instead, what you have is just this beautiful picture of its conclusion, that mm. what you see at the climax of history is the fulfillment of every tribe, tongue, uh, tribe, tongue and nation having come under the lordship of Jesus and praise mm. him forever. Like that is, you know, Genesis 15 in a nutshell, uh, or at least what was anticipated. So that's one picture is the Abrahamic peace. Yeah. And if you can, if you can talk to you about, you, you talk about the temple presence, the Ezekiel um, Ezekiel 40 to 48 and its description of the temple and then how revelation takes that temple and then what revelation does with the temple in chapters 21 and 22. So if you can talk about that temple presence with the Lord, but also what revelation does with that. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's almost impossible to summarize because there's so much. So as you move towards the back end of revelation, uh, and he's describing a new, you know, a heavenly Jerusalem coming down, right. Well, you can't get more Jewish and covenantal than the, the name of the main city, right? Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. You can't get more Jewish than Jerusalem. But he's basically saying Jerusalem is no longer this physical city where we need to reconstruct a physical temple, right? And some folks study the news and they're looking at C-SPAN and like, hey, we're going to move the embassy and we're going to rebuild the temple or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to mock that view, but, but that's really is missing the point, uh, which is according to the book of Revelation, that that's not the game. The game is that the whole universe is actually now a heavenly Jerusalem, i.e. it's the presence of God Hmm. and it's the place of worship. And so it comes down with this uh, renewal of heaven and earth. And so essentially the whole cosmos is now the temple that Ezekiel had described uh, in sort of ginormous proportions in the back part of Ezekiel. Uh, and what you see show up are, uh, you know, the, the 12 gates that equate to the 12 apostles. You have the 12 foundations, which equate to the uh, 12 tribes. You have the saints who are described as a new priesthood, who are they described, they, you know, they're described as priest to God. Uh, in chapter 21, they've been washed in blood. And so they're serving in this heavenly temple being purchased by the blood of Jesus. But then John says, but there's actually no temple in the new city because 
God is actually the temple. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that's the crazy thing. It's like, wait a second. I thought we we're supposed to rebuild an earthly temple and then mm. there's going to be a throne and Jesus is going to come back and says, no, you're missing the point. That's not even what Ezekiel was talking about. Ezekiel's basically looking forward to all of creation being the dwelling of God and that he is the, pre- he is his own presence basically. Um, now just transformed in this way that you can't even wrap your head around. And that, that explains the sort of massive dimensions. But then what happens when you're, when you're being, uh, or the, the non-temple, if you will, the whole creation, you have the tree of life show up. So you're back in Eden. Um, there's no more sea. So this sort of cosmic upheaval that was part of the original creation represented by the sea is no more. They're singing the song of Moses. And so that's crazy. And so there's so many things that sort of come mm, yeah. song of Moses from the book of Exodus. Um, but fundamentally what you have are these, the tree of life that's now giving abundant fruit for the healing of the nations, which is a lovely picture that, again, that's an Abrahamic idea. Uh, there's no longer a curse. And so that goes back to Adam. The church is now the bride. Um, and so it's almost just like, uh, I don't even know this symphonic crescendo of everything it's like john's like i'm gonna take everything and just put it all together i mean it's, it truly <laughs> yeah, is exactly astounding. yeah um yeah you but, even but the, the, the thing that i that is perhaps most compelling as he does this and there's so many moving parts that again it's impossible to even like diagram um but where he lands is what is commonly known as the emmanuel principle and maybe you talked about that in prior episodes but what, what's so compelling about his final vision is that the true hope isn't so much like you know, my kids ask questions like, well, are we going to have uh, Jeremiah's ice cream in heaven? Are we going to have tablets <laughs> in heaven? Like, will we be able to do gymnastics in heaven? And I don't know what the answer to all those questions is, but uh, a, a very this worldly understanding of heaven about, you know, are we going to get wings? We have superpowers. Uh, those are all interesting questions. But where John lands is that the basic blessing of heaven is the Emmanuel principle. It concludes with you know, I will be with them as their God hmm. and they will be with me as my people. And he's, he tenderly wipes away all the tears from her eyes. Death is no more, et cetera. And that is the final word, really. That's the crescendo of the what I would argue uh, is the, the entire theme of all of the Bible is the Emmanuel principle. God making a people for himself and him being their God. And so that begins all the way back in Genesis. It finishes in the book of Revelation. And it's sort of like his mic drop. Like this hmm. is what you're hoping for. Yeah, uh, is that. And so that's the sort of, in some respects, you want to think of what's the covenantal heart of the book of Revelation. Like there's a lot of moving parts with David and temple and rainbow and all that. Yeah. But fundamentally what he's driving towards, which is, I think, immensely relevant for his audience as they're in this time of upheaval, questioning, has God disappeared? Why are we suffering? Which is a question we ask today as well. Yeah. Uh, the promise that he gives isn't so much that you'll get some free stuff in heaven. Um, the, or that, you know, nature will be renewed and we won't have pollution anymore or whatever. Uh, the promise is the presence of God. That's where he drives things mm-hmm. to. Everything is building to that. And really all of the imagery that he uses from the old covenants uh, is to that end. But differently, if you think about what the whole covenant is about, it's a relationship between God and his people. And that's where the book of Revelation lands is the consummation of that relationship, which he portrays as a wedding. So it is a beautiful way that he wraps it all up, sort of puts a bow on it with this final, final version of the Emmanuel principle that you see dozens of times in the old Testament. And, 
handful of times in the New Testament. So anyway, that's probably big. That was more more than probably what you bargained. No, that was that's a great summation of the chapter. Yeah, I think yeah, you I mean, asked about I think you asked about Ezekiel 40 through 48, but I think that's every, good, yeah. Uh, that but the good. temple is so pervasive in the Old Testament and New yeah. Testament. And then you realize what Revelation is doing with the New Testament. It's like, oh my gosh, it's taking what we saw in the Old Testament and then expanding that further than we ever thought it would. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good that you're able to run with it and just kind of unpack it for us. And I think it's you say this well in the chapter, the very meaning of history itself is the consummation of God's covenant. And it just, it almost seems like the end of revelation is wrapping right around to where Genesis started. And then you talk about how the days of creation are reversed and there'll be no need for even the sun anymore for God's presence is the light and that kind of thing. So that goes back. It's almost, to, it's almost like John was self-consciously writing scripture to conclude scripture. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, that, but I, you know, I, that, that's what I think that's an indirect argument for what did John know what he was doing? Yeah. And I think yeah. it would be almost foolish to think that he didn't because whenever you get to the end of revelation and you have, you know, behold, I see new heavens and new earth because the former heavens and former earth have passed away. It's like, that's Genesis one, one, mm-hmm. you have this shining of light that you don't need anymore. Okay. That's Genesis back part of Genesis one, uh, you have, uh, this tree of life show up again, which by the way, had basically disappeared in the old Testament. Mm, Yeah. You have it again. Um, so you're back in Eden and then you have, uh, the sort of true Adam marrying his bride. So that's Adam and Eve, but now remixed and cosmically transformed. And so, uh, and then he sort of says, all right, don't add anything to this. And if you do, that's bad. And so he's like, okay, we're done. Uh, we we've circled all the way back around to Genesis and history has reached its, its destination. So, yeah. And he's, he's also, I mean, from what you say in the chapter, he's almost self-consciously pulling from Deuteronomy on the covenant document understanding where he's yes. self-consciously writing this as a, as a covenant document because you don't add to covenant documents. Yeah. Thank you right. for the guide of the Holy spirit, helping them write it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, you know, th- this is kind of a somewhat random thought, but uh, I, in class yesterday, I was asked, uh, you know, did the new Testament writers essentially, did they know what they were doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, or were these just sort of like random devotional thoughts and they'd be surprised? Like, why are you guys preaching that? That's weird. Uh, and there's, that's a whole big can of worms. But for John, I think it's very, very interesting. Uh, the church fathers, as early as we can go back, had a sense, and, and they talk about how John, the so far as we can tell, the last living apostle, assuming he lived into the 90s, uh, that he had received the four, assuming he, he received Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They had circulated enough. They got to him. He sanctioned them. And this is uh, some of the handful of church fathers talk about. He sanctioned them, sort of put his bow on it by adding his fourth to supplement them. Hmm. And so from a covenant perspective, essentially what he's doing is he's closing the fourfold gospel by adding his fourth and he's hmm. saying, okay, this is, this, we don't need others. This is the sort of decisive apostolic say. Yeah. And then uh, in some sense, he does that with revelation where he says, okay, uh, if, if John's gospel implicitly uh, commends or, or acknowledges the other three and then brings them to a conclusion as a fourfold unit, uh, then the book of Revelation is a self-conscious wrap-up, not just in the New Testament, but the entire Bible. Um, and so that John guy was a clever guy. Um, yeah. You can mm. see why Jesus liked him so much. Yep. 
And then I know we're tight on time. So one last thing that I think that was extremely helpful with your chapter is just a reminder to everyone that prayers are the incense now to God. And I love how you point that out. That that last few days I've been soaking that in when I, in my prayer life, really knowing that in the old covenant, you know, temple image, that incense that God finds pleasing, he relates to that now with our prayers. Yeah. Yeah, as that, the church, yeah. I mean, and knowing that it is an Old Testament idea, I think, and, and I don't mean to be flippant, but a, a postmodern mid-20-something would probably see the incense and, and they would think, oh, this is what I buy at Sephora or whatever and burn in my house, <laughs> yeah. right? With my diffuser or whatever. I don't know how incense works. Um, but, but in reality, it's actually this deeply Israelite corporate worship of God, mm, this yeah pleasing aroma. And in fact, the incense was used in the most holy place directly in his presence. Um, and so that's the kind of, you know, the priests would take the incense into the presence of God. Now that's our prayers. You know, mm. we're the ones present with God uh, through prayer, not through sort of manipulating things on earth, but it's actually through communication. So uh, again, you don't, you don't really make any sense of that very lovely idea, unless you actually know the Old Testament. Otherwise, you're just left with like whatever random pop culture stuff you can think about. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. So, I mean, thanks. Thanks for talking about this and, and summarizing your chapter, kind of walking people hand by hand through Revelation, a little bit of first, second and third John. Um, yeah, I think a, a different perspective than what people usually get, especially outside the reform context of what Revelation is and, and how John is writing this as a covenant yeah. document. Um, but before we end, is there anything else you kind of have coming up on the horizon that you can, you can point people to, to more of, of what you're working on? Uh, let's see. I mean, something just came out not like just a few weeks ago uh, is a uh, very different kind of thing. It's a much <laughs> yeah. more nerdy scholarly thing, but it's um, called Corpus Christologicum, which is a fancy word for essentially like Christological source books, essentially what it is. And in it, I compile something like 300 passages, mostly from Jewish literature, a couple early church father stuff, mainly on the Son of Man, where you have, uh, so we're thinking mostly intertestamental, so between Old Testament and New Testament, where you have discussions of this Son of Man figure or a Messiah of some sort or some sort of exalted angel who's doing crazy things. And so it has the primary sources. So that's in the biblical languages plus other languages like Latin. But then you also have a translation. You have a little bit of a commentary, some resources that you could go study that. And so the point of that really is to be the kind of a one-stop shop for anyone who's interested in how did seemingly overnight Paul and John and Matthew and Luke, how did they, like what sort of intellectually, but also devotionally, how did all of a sudden they go from being staunch monotheistic people being at least the ones who were Jewish to actually worshiping Jesus and calling him Mm. God and calling him Lord. And so, uh, so that's, so this is basically like sort of an intellectual background study, uh, sort of how were Jews thinking about Messiah figures? How were they thinking about God? And so it's, there's not a thesis that I'm arguing. It's basically yeah. like, here's a, here's a one-stop place for you to go to get, get up to speed on all the different sources that are relevant. So that's just came out. Uh, then I have two other things coming up that are more uh, layperson oriented. Uh, my wife asked me like, can I read the Corpus book? And I said, you can read <laughs> half of it. Uh, half of it you wouldn't be able to read unless you want to study Ethiopic or something. But um, 
in a couple of months, uh, Will Ross and I, and I think you've interviewed him recently, we yep. have a uh, sort of educated layperson oriented uh, or pastor or student, Bible college student, that kind of thing, introduction to the Greek Old Testament. And I think Ooh, you've talked nice. about him, uh, yep. talked with him about that. Yep. Uh, what it is, why it matters. And so he wrote the what it is part and I wrote the why it matters part. Mm. Um, and then in March or April of next year, and this hasn't been uh, publicized much, but it's, 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 uh, it's on its way, is uh, a layperson oriented guide to the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Interesting. It'll be, it'll be called uh, Old Made New. And that's with Crossway. And it's uh, essentially aimed to equip Bible study leaders, uh, you know, active Bible readers of any sort without knowledge of the languages and that kind of thing. How do you, how do you understand and go about the task of tracing when a New Testament author like Paul or whomever uh, engaged with the Old Testament? How, how do you do that responsibly um, with lots of examples and so forth? Um, so that'll be fun. Looking forward to that. It's in its uh, final editing stages now, but that'll come out in a few months as well. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to, We've, uh, we've already talked to Dr. Ross about Septuagint, so we're going to have to have both of you on again to talk about this book and the books that you have coming out later that are huge for lay audience, learning about some of these things probably for the first time. Yeah, yeah, we're hoping that it'll be a good resource for people who, who see it in the footnotes of as early as Genesis, like the Septuagint. They don't know how to say it. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, nobody knows how to say it, um, but or at least there's debate, but, uh, but maybe have never heard any sort of like, what is that? And there's a lot of misconception about what it is. So hopefully that'll be a benefit to people. Um, cool. And then the other, the other book that's uh, in some respects, a companion to that one is uh, I think I find that students, preachers and, and, and lay people, whenever they bump into Paul quoting Genesis or Matthew quoting Zechariah or whatever, most of the time our instinct is just to like keep reading and just keep moving on uh, as opposed mm. to slow down, go look up the passage. Mm. How does that come to bear in mm. the New Testament yeah. context? Sort of some basic blocking and tackling. Most of the books that are out there that deal with this are either super duper technical PhD kind of thing mm -hmm. or uh, are trying to make it accessible, but are still like, here's, here's nine steps and 27 categories. I'm like, that's still way too complicated. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to give you three steps and three categories, trying to simplify it, trying to make it something that, you know, my mother could, could mm. use. I like it. Uh, so, so actually more, it was more difficult than I expected, uh, but we'll see how it goes. When it comes cool. Up. Yeah. Thank you for all that. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on Dr. Lanier. Thanks for talking about your chapter, holding our hands and our listeners hands and, and hopefully people come to a, a better, more um, biblical, gospel-centered, covenantal-centered understanding of Revelation and the Johannine epistles. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. You guys keep doing what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah. And you, after you rate and review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, 
liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on anchor our official anchor website if you just go on um, our social media links it'll it'll link you to that website it's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast this specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.